in the last week and a half has been uh, a very fun start of something for a couple of us here at the church. I am speaking of third and fourth grade basketball. And um, our, our very gifted head coach this year is Lucas Van Sistine, and I, his humble assistant, ready to follow whatever our coach leads and directs. And one of the ways I was very happy to follow his leading uh, was as uh, our, our team of 11 players were gathered around and many of the parents were there for the first practice. Luke had the wonderful idea, let's have every child give their goals for the year. One goal. And every one of these third and fourth graders as we went around this room gave a goal. And they were hilarious. It did not disappoint. Kids, name one goal for this upcoming year. I think the median answer was to score a bucket. One was enough, I think, for, for some of these children who were there. This is being recorded for posterity, so I do need to be careful here, but for one or more, it may take a modern be a miracle uh, for that uh, to come to fruition. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a noble goal, right, to score a bucket. Uh, another one of them was uh, expressing a desire to be uh, dribbling the ball more than he did last year. Um, whether there's a reason for whether his amount of dribbling last year was such, again, it's a good and noble goal uh, uh, for him. One um, from a family that will go unnamed desired to pass the ball more this year. And whether he was related to me and whether he shares my inclination to shoot on the basketball court, I will just leave for your complete speculation. Again, a noble goal, believe me, a noble goal. But you know, it's interesting because do you know what I didn't hear one kid say? My goal for this year is to do whatever it takes for us to win. Not, not one kid gave that goal. Do you know what a, no one, no, not one kid gave? My goal is to do whatever my coach wants me to do and to do it cheerfully. Not, not one gave that goal. And of course, these are children, right? They have very simple goals and aspirations and good goals and aspirations. Of course, at their age, they should be looking to have fun. And that is everything that we are looking to support at this stage. But I, I, I found it interesting if you were to compare that to someone who's been playing for a decade in the National Basketball Association. Because do you know there are players all over the NBA who have long since realized they'll never be the star player on their team. They've realized they'll never have the spotlight on them. They've realized they'll never have a long-term mega, mega, mega million dollar contract. They've realized they're good at really one thing. And they simply will do whatever it takes to fit in on that team, even if it's being the 12th man off the bench who rarely gets to play and can only practice hard to make the other guys better. And they'll do whatever the coach says to help increase their team's chance to win a game. And do you know what those players are? They're really valuable. Why? Because their goals have been shaped, have been directed by one thing. However the coach thinks they need to win a game. 
Their goal is not the goal of the third and fourth grade basketball player who just wants to score a bucket or dribble a little bit more or have fun. Their goal has been directed and shaped by the one who's in charge. And I thought about that today. As this morning we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and we looked at someone whose prayer was shaped by the coach. Whose prayer was shaped by the one in charge. And how do we know that? Because in the garden, he had a desire. It was a legitimate human desire. God, my Father, save me from this hour. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass away from me, that I don't have to drink it, this awful bitter cup of your wrath and your judgment. As I stand as the sin bearer, I become a curse for mankind. It was an entirely legitimate human desire, and yet his prayer was shaped to say, nevertheless, Father, now what I want, what you want. And what I want to bring us to tonight is to, is to ponder just a simple question. How much is your prayer shaped by the coach? How much are your desires that you present to God directed by and molded by the very one you're praying to? Or conversely, how much is your prayer life like those third and fourth grade basketball players who come to God and say, I'd like to shoot a little bit more. I'd like to score a bucket or two. I'd like to dribble the ball a little more. Now, as I said this morning, it is right and it is appropriate for us to take to God our legitimate human desires that aren't shaped by lust, that aren't shaped by fleshliness and covetousness in a way that we can see. God wants us to bring everything before him in prayer. And just like Jesus brought his lawful human desire before God and said, God, you know my desire. I'm asking you for this. It is fully appropriate for us in prayer to take those lawful human desires before God and say, God, you know that I want this person to be healed. You know that I want this situation to come out in this way. I think it could bring you glory if that comes about. It's right. I'm not suggesting that there's a, not a place for us to make our desires known before God, to spread them out before him and say, God, oh, oh God, you know my desire here. And yet I'm wondering the extent to which your very desires in prayer are shaped by your communion with God. Now that is a little bit roundabout way of getting into Philippians chapter 1. Because I wonder if one of the challenges of your prayer life is wondering how even to pray for those you love. Some of you have adult children. And they are grown and they are making their own decisions now. And you get on your knees in the morning and you say, God, how do you want me to pray for my grown son? For my grown daughter? Oh God, how do you want me to pray for my teenage children? Oh God, who do you, how do you want me to pray for my church friends? For my fellow believers. How do you want me to pray for my pastor? How do you want me to pray for our elders? How do you want me to pray for our missionaries? And then we open the Bible and we see how God's people prayed when they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell us exactly how. And I want you to see here in verse 9 through verse 11 of Philippians chapter 1 how Paul's prayers were shaped by the coach how his desires were molded by the very God to whom he was praying. Listen to these words. And this I pray, 
that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by or through Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God. For the next few moments together, we're going to look at this prayer, just those three verses. We're going to try to understand what Paul really is praying for, and then we're going to try to understand how our prayers can be shaped by the very one to whom we're praying. The title of the message tonight is God-Shaped Prayer. God-Shaped Prayer. And as we look at this example of God-Shaped Prayer, I'm hoping that it will be a challenge to your prayer life and to mine. And not only that, it will be an encouragement to what God wants you to become, what your prayer for yourself should be in the days ahead. Notice that there are really three things that Paul is praying for here. And we can break these out into any number of different categories. But I'm going to break them into three because I think it's a logical sequence, a logical development that Paul is bringing out here. Really three requests. The first request that he makes is for love that grows. Love that grows. Do you see it here? And again, we're really going to be diving into the text here. I encourage you to have your Bibles out and to have them open as we look at this text together. Verse 9 says this, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more. Now, notice something here that Paul is really driving at. His very first thing when he prays for the Philippians is that their love would abound. It would abound, it would grow, and notice how he says, yet more and more. Now, that is to say, he was taking for granted that they did have love. They were not loveless people. Because otherwise you wouldn't say abound more and more. That, uh, that presumes that you already have some. And yet he also is praying that their love would keep on growing more and more. And you can just keep on adding. And more and more and more. Now do you notice something about, again, what this presumes? It presumes that your love can grow. N no, not can grow. Should grow. Have you ever thought about that? Your love should grow more and more and more and more. Or we could put it this way. You are never at a place of sufficient love in your Christian life. You are never at a place where you can be complacent with the amount that you love God and you love others. Now, now when we pause there... This was a challenging thought. Have I gotten complacent in the amount that I love? How often do I step back before God and say, God, today help me to love more than I did yesterday. Help me to love people practically today, this week, this week more than I did last week, this year more than I did last year. Now, I ask that because if you're anything like me, the way that it's easy to slide into grading our Christian life is by very tangible outward activities. Am I faithful in church? Am I reading my Bible? Am I having prayer time? 
Am I faithful in certain activities that he's called me to? Am I, am I, am I treating my wife right? Am I treating my children right? And, and we can just think, well, how am I doing spiritually? Well, I'm doing all these things. So, so I'm doing fine. But love growing kind of pierces that veil, doesn't it? It says it's not enough what you're doing. It's, it's really the question about what's going on in your character. Are you growing more loving day by day? You're loving people more today than you were yesterday. And if the answer to that question is a no or an I'm not sure, well, then how really am I doing spiritually? And I just want to say that to you. Please be careful about measuring your human sanctification by the things that unsaved people can do. There are unsaved people out there who read their Bibles more than you do. There are unsaved people out there who have more time in prayer than you do. If I am measuring my spirituality by something that unsaved people can do, that's not a very good test. Do you know what unsaved people cannot legitimately do? They cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit in increasing love day after day after day after day. That's a much better test of my spiritual life than mere habits. And don't get me wrong. Habits are wonderful things to put in place in my spiritual life, spiritual disciplines. But we must be careful about how we're really measuring our spiritual life. Paul's prayer was, I pray that your love is going to keep on growing. Now, let's step back again for a moment. Why does Paul say the very first thing I'm praying for is for your love? Does that strike you immediately as a little bit soft, a little bit squishy? Oh, love, okay, we're talking, it's just all about love. No, no. No, Paul recognized something that comes throughout his letters, if you look for it. The truth of the matter, biblically, is that love is the engine of your holiness. Love is the driver of you being holy. Now, that shouldn't be surprising when you realize God's two great duties for man. God's two great duties for man are to love him supremely, with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others selflessly, to love your neighbor as yourself. His two great duties for man both involve love. Love me, love others. Is it any surprise that growing in love means you're growing in holiness to be more like him? It's not surprising at all. Because what is holiness? Holiness at its root literally is to be set apart. God is holy because he is set apart from his creatures. There is, there is no one like him, not just in his power, not just in his omniscience, not just in his all-encompassing wisdom. He is, he, is, he is set apart in his character. There's no one who loves like God. There is no one who is patient like God. There is no one who has precise, measured judgment like God. There is no one who feels righteous indignation, wrath, like God does. He is set apart from us. So for you to become holy, you must become set apart from other people, from those who do not know God. And the way you are set apart is by your love. This is why Jesus says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Because he is presuming that the world does not know that kind of love. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, how will you know, be known to be the children of your Father which is in heaven? That you love your enemies. Why? Because if you just love those who love you, even the publicans, even the unsaved sinners do that, that doesn't set you apart. That doesn't reveal any holiness for you to love the people who are kind to you. Ah, 
But when you pray for those who curse you, you bless those who curse you, you pray for those who despitefully use you, you love those who are persecuting you, the world says, whoa, this guy's different. You see, that's holiness. Now, I'm not just logically working through this. This is Bible. And I just want you to make a little note here of 1 Thessalonians 3 and verses 12 through 13. You can turn there or I'll just read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 through 13. Listen to this really remarkable connection that Paul draws. He says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men. Again, another prayer. God, make them to abound and increase in love toward the brothers and sisters and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end. Okay, so for the purpose... He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father. Do you notice the connection? God, make them abound in love toward everybody. Why? So that you may establish them in holiness. Exactly what I'm saying. Do you want to be more holy? Love more. Do you want to become more like God? Love more. More and more and more and more. And you'll become more holy. Because God loves. What a remarkable thing. And what a challenge that is to when we only view holiness as something that is effectively what we are or who we are on the outside. And God says, wait a second. Do you want to be holy? It starts with who you are on the inside, with your loving character that reflects mine. That will set you apart. And by the way, when you love more and more and more and more on the inside, it'll affect how you live on the outside. It'll affect how you look on the outside. It'll change the way you live. Paul's prayer is what? I want you to love more and more and more and more. Now, just one very brief note about this. What does he say? Why does he say, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more? You say, well, to abide in Christ is to bear much fruit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. So isn't it really true that I'm asking, that he's asking that God's love would flow through me? Well, that's very true in a spiritual sense, but that's not what he says. He says that your love, now, just take this and think about it a little bit. I'm not, I'm not trying to give you the perfect answer, but I just want you to think about this. The reality of your spiritual life and sanctification is when God's love becomes your love. Does that make sense? When God's love becomes yours. And, and I think about it like this. When I was in school, I studied um, pipe organ with... Uh, just a wonderful organist, and I'm hoping I see him this week. This weekend, Lord willing, Lars and I are going down to North Carolina and um, back to the place I went to school and hopefully meet up with some old friends, including my old pipe organ professor. And I remember we would be playing, and I would be playing a piece, and he would stop me, and he would say, oh, no, not like that. Do it like this. And I would literally slide onto the bench, and he would play it. And I would say, oh, like that. Oh, yeah, that's what you mean. And eventually, my organ playing was becoming saturated with his organ playing, right? He would do, do a little trill on this note. Okay. And then eventually, as I studied for year after year with him, you could just kind of know what he would want you to do, right? It was just like, oh, 
that's the kind of note that you do a trill on. My view of playing the organ was being shaped by my teacher. His style became my style. And in that same way, when you sit under the teacher, when you are discipled by Jesus Christ, his love becomes your love. You begin to think about people the way he thinks about people. You begin to be generous in the way he is generous because he is your teacher, right? So when Paul prays that your love may abound yet more and more, he's not saying anything different than that Christ lives in you and it's his life and his love working through you. And yet he's really, I think, challenging ultimately that his love truly in its capacity and its character and its consistency becomes your love. So first of all, he prays for a love that grows. And also, if you're going to grow in your Christian life, your love needs to grow more tomorrow than it is today. Notice the second thing he prays for. He prays not only for love that grows, he prays for discernment that guides. Discernment that guides. Will you look with me again? Let's keep on going in verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more, but then he makes sure to add, in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Now let's break those, each of those three clauses down. First of all, that your love may abound in knowledge and in all judgment. Notice, first of all here, he's looking for a discernment that guides like a rudder. Here's what the point I'm simply making. If love is the engine that drives your spiritual progress forward, discernment's the rudder that directs you. And the reason that Paul is asking, he's praying for knowledge and all judgment, literally a kind of discernment, is because this rudder, this action, will guide and shape your love so that it's like God's love. The, the knowledge that he's talking about here is really a precise kind of doctrinal or theological knowledge. He's talking about a knowledge that is shaped by the Bible, that is rooted in God's word and God's truth. And again, let me give you an example. If I were to come to you and say, my love is growing so much. In fact, it's being directed toward people who are not my wife. You would say, well, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. That's not love. That's according to knowledge because it violates God's word. It, right? That's the idea. We can have a love that appears to be a love, but it's not rooted in God's word. It's not directed by God's word. And therefore, it's not truly God's love. It's not truly consistent with that principle of love. So there's, there's the, the love that's rooted in knowledge, but also it's the love that's rooted in what he calls all judgment. And the idea here is that, that all judgment is having the idea of, of this kind of discernment, of a moral judgment that knows how to apply love to the circumstances. In other words, it's not just a kind of head knowledge that you know the principles, you know the doctrines, you know the theology. It is, it is a kind of discernment that takes love and brings it down to the bottom shelf where you can actually access it in your day-to-day -day life. And if you have any question about the importance of this, look at our modern world. Look at our culture. We are a culture today that, that, that prizes a kind of love 
that is completely disconnected from discernment, that is completely disconnected from biblical knowledge. And I think about this today. Maybe the best example on my mind and heart is what we see today in complete confusion regarding God's design for men and women. Complete confusion in one's what would be called gender identity today. And I said before, and I'll say it again, I'm surrounded by this ideology in the work that I, that, that, that I do. And, and, and the reality of it is that it is seen and felt as a kind of love, a kind of compassion. Well, why wouldn't you want someone to be who they want to be, to, to live out what their own felt reality is? And I can tell you that for many people today, it is simply a matter of love, a simply a matter of compassion towards someone who's hurting, towards someone who's struggling. And yet, there's no knowledge. There's no discernment. There's no understanding of the way that God made these people in his image. And that rebelling against God's design for them will not lead to their flourishing, but will lead to their great regret and sorrow and harm. You see, in this and many other ways, the Apostle Paul is counseling us, Christian, grow in love, but make sure it's a thinking kind of love. Make sure it's a discerning kind of love. Make sure it's a love that looks at, uh, at, 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 the, at the, the blessing of other people through the lens of the Bible and through the lens of their maker and not through whatever your society or your culture is telling you at that particular time. Make sure Christian for you too. It's very easy for us, for, for, for those who have adult children, to have a love, a kind of love for their adult children that refuses to stand on a discerning kind of knowledge and truth about right, about right and wrong and what will actually be for their blessing and what will be for their harm in the future. Be careful. Make sure that you're abounding in love, but also make sure that that love always has a rudder of the knowledge given by God in his word and the discernment that allows that to be wisely applied to specific circumstances. So there's a rudder here that your knowledge, that it will be knowledge and all judgment, but notice why he says that. That, or you could put so that, why do we need knowledge and all judgment? So that ye may approve things that are excellent. I love this. This is not just a rudder. This discernment does not just act as a rudder. It serves as a tester. That you may approve things that are excellent. How many times, if you've ever walked into a store and given them a, a $100 bill, what do they do? Take that bill. They hold it up. They look at it. Maybe they put a little mark on it to test whether it's legitimate. If you've seen that, you know exactly what Paul's talking about here. Do you know this word for approve? I think it's the, from the Greek word dokomatso. It literally has the idea of testing currency. It literally has the idea of trying to spot counterfeits. The idea has the, the idea of you approving something after testing it to be legitimate. Hold it up to the light. It's a $100 bill. That's legitimate. I'll put it in the till. I'll put it in the cash register. That's what you're doing. See, he's saying your love needs to grow, 
But make sure that it's in knowledge and judgment. It's guided to the right place. Why? So that when someone comes to you with the $100 bill, when you are looking at the $100 bills in your life, you're able to spot the ones that are legitimate, not just legitimate, that are excellent, and approve it. You say, well, what does this matter? Well, it suggests this, friends. If you and I don't have an abounding love that is in knowledge and discernment, you might start approving things that are not excellent. Now, how many times have you in your own life justified an activity that you really want to do, a piece of entertainment that you really want to watch, by saying, well, it's not that bad. Well, other people watch stuff that's a lot worse than this. Well, maybe this is not the best use of my time, true, but... And then Paul says, you know, I want you to be abounding in love and discernment so much that what you're looking to test is what's excellent. And the word excellent here literally has the idea of something that is distinguishing. It, it's, it's differentiating. It's like you recognize there's a spectrum of different things. And you're able to say, this one's better than that one. And this one's worse than that one. And I want the one that's excellent. What do you need for that? You need abounding love for God and others. And you need discernment to approve what is excellent. You know, friends, in our world of all the media and all, frankly, the garbage that is in our world, we need those discerning, discerning thinking to be able to identify, to approve the things that are excellent. Now notice also what he says. So that, or that, so that, ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. This is also has so much riches in it. Why do you need to approve things that are excellent? Why do you need to seek those things that truly differentiate themselves? So that you may be sincere in that day of Christ when all of your works are tested by him. Now that word sincere is another just a wonderful Greek word. The idea behind it seems to be literally that that is something that is tested by the sun. I want you to think about that for a minute. It's said that in the old markets, when people would go to buy pottery, there was very clever forging that was happening. What would happen, I understand, is that people, that the, the, the ceramics would crack easily, and so someone would, instead of, when that, when that pottery cracked, they would just fill in the pottery, or the crack, with a kind of glue that you couldn't see easily. But it would be a cracked piece of ceramic. And so what people might do when they came to the, the, the market was they would take their ceramics and they would hold it up to the light. They would hold it up to the sunlight. And when it gleamed in the sunlight, they'd say, eh, there's a crack there. That's not legitimate. And they wouldn't buy it. The sense comes to be that this sincere kind of person is the one who's tested by the light and found to be pure and found not to be a hypocrite, found to be what it claims to be. 
And then think about what Paul is really praying for for these Philippian people. He's saying, I'm praying that inwardly you're exactly what you identify yourself to be. That your life is lived in the light under the sunlight of God's word, under his scrutiny, and legitimately when you stand before Christ one day and you're judged by him, he'll have the delight of saying to you, you were a person that was sincere. You were a person who was the way you represented yourself to be my sincere, pure follower. What a great thing. Isn't that what you want for yourself? God, shine your sunlight on me. Test me. Test me if there's any impure way in me. He says, not only sincere, but you're without offense. And this word, again, has the idea of not stumbling on something, not being tripped up by something. It has the idea, perhaps, of, of not having stumbling blocks in your own way and not putting stumbling blocks in the way of others. That is to say, sincere is reflecting your inner character, that you're not a hypocrite that you have a purity and, and, and integrity of life in the secret areas of your life. And to be without offense means that because of this abounding love and this discernment that is distinguishing what is excellent from what is not excellent, you're not putting stumbling blocks in your own way or in the way of others to trip up and to fall, as, as some translations might put it, blameless. You're blameless externally, as well as pure and sincere internally. Paul is connecting these things logically to say you need a discernment that guides how you act and what you bring into your life so that it will direct you to be sincere inwardly and without offense or blameless outwardly until the day of Christ. So first of all, he says, I'm praying for a love that will grow, that will make you holy. I'm praying for a discernment that will guide you to be the way God wants you to be at the day of Christ. And then finally, he prays for fruit that glorifies. Notice what he says in verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Now, the first question we should ask is, what are these fruits of righteousness that he wants you to be filled with, that he wants the Philippian people to be filled with? I think he's talking about the fruit that is righteousness, that is your righteous acts, what Jesus calls your good works, that others may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In Colossians 1, he says that, we, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. So he, he connects your fruit in your spiritual life to your good works, to your righteous deeds, to your acts of love before others. And now notice that's what he is suggesting here. When your love abounds toward everyone, and when it's shaped and guided by discernment, Paul is saying, you're going to be filled with righteous fruit in the way you treat other people and in the way 
you ultimately bring glory to God. You see, notice what he says next, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. And you can preach a whole sermon on that. How are we to experience those good works, those righteous acts, only by and through Jesus Christ? As Jesus said in John 15, Abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Friends, this is the gospel. That God called you from a sinful world. He saved you. He forgave you of your sins. He made you a new creature. Why? So that you could reflect his character by your love and your good works as a light in this darkened world. This is what Jesus has called you to do. It is what Jesus has enabled you to do. And then he says in verse 11, unto the glory and praise of God. What ultimately is your abounding in love, your growth and discernment that is guiding you, your fruit that is, being, that is being produced in your life by Jesus Christ? What's the goal? That God would get praise. That God would get glory. Now, now step back from, from that for just one minute as we close here. What is Paul doing in this, in these three verses? He's praying. Who's he praying to? Who's he praying to? God. And what's he asking? God, do the things in them that will glorify you. Did you stop to consider that? He is saying, God, you make the Philippians love more. You increase them in knowledge and discernment. You make them sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Why? So that you will receive the glory when it comes to pass. This is why I say that Paul's prayer is God-shaped. It is reflecting the things that God wants for his people. And it's reflecting the motivation for why he's asking God, because I want you to get the glory and I want you to get the praise. That's why I'm coming to you and asking. So let's step back and ask ourselves the very question we began with tonight. Are your prayers God-shaped prayers? We could ask it this way. When we come to prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, are the prayers of our church family God-shaped prayers? Is what is flowing out of our hearts as we ask God for our children, for our loved ones, for our family members, for our church family, for our fellow brothers and sisters around the world, are we asking God make their love to abound? God, give them discernment so that they would be approving the things that are excellent. God, make them so that they're glorifying you by the way they live their daily life. God, that's what I want because it is what you want. Are our prayers God-shaped prayers? And finally, I ask you tonight, is that your prayer tonight for yourself? 
as you start into a new week, is it your earnest desire that this week your love would grow more and more? That your discernment would guide you, would guide that love in all of its daily moral judgments that you'll be called on to make this week. And ultimately, is the desire of your heart to experience the fruit of righteousness by Jesus, which will make your life be to the praise and glory of God. You see, Jesus taught us to pray like this because he taught us to pray our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May each one of us take this God-shaped prayer and make it our own this week.